Welcome back to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. I'm your host, Mike Wong. Today, another interview from my trip to the 2019 Sagan Workshop. Our guests are Shreyas Visipragata and Ida Bamard, two fantastic Caltech graduate students who, since the last time they were on Strange New Worlds, have been working hard to unravel the mysteries of distant planetary systems from the lab, at the telescope, and on their computers. Now, even the most seasoned Strange New Worlds listeners might not recall the last time we had Shreyas and Ida on the show. In fact, if you can name those episodes from memory, then give yourself a big round of applause because it's been so long that even I had to look them up. We last heard Shreyas on episode 31 of Strange New Worlds, where he, as a brand new Trekkie, helped me recap the finale of the first season of Star Trek Discovery. And Shreyas and Ida both were on episode 15 as a part of a roundtable of scientists who gave their gut reactions to Discovery's series premiere all the way back in September 2017. But in neither of those episodes did we really get to talk about these two's super cool research projects, which range from studying the tiniest building blocks of planetary material to observations of super puffy giant exoplanets to the compositions of stars. So that's what we'll do today. Engage! Uh, I just wanted to start off by thanking you for taking the time to join me on Strange New Worlds again. Yeah, of course, Mike. And I've been, you know, scanning the archive, which is this repository of recent articles that astronomers and planetary scientists and astrochemists put their most recent work on for everybody to see. And I noticed that you two have some very exciting science that you've done recently this year. And I thought I would ask you about that so that you could have the chance to share it with the Strange New Worlds community. Uh, I'd like to start with Ida. Um, Ida, you study protoplanetary disks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so my work was that. Yes, and so in Star Trek we had these beautiful binary protoplanetary disks in the first season of Star Trek Discovery, and inside those disks, Michael Burnham says, Around these two suns, ice, dust, and gases collide to form planets future generations will call home. A humbling reminder that all life is born from chaos and destruction. Based on initial readings... Ida, your work was focused on the hydrocarbons in these disks, mm-hmm. right? And you studied the binding energies of hydrocarbons. Mm-hmm. So that sounds like maybe how sticky they are? Well, in a sense. So basically the binding energies are the amount of energy you need to like break an intermolecular bond. So you can kind of translate this energy to a temperature. And if you have a temperature at which this uh, kind of dissociation of molecules occurs, then you can also figure out where within a disk, like the spatial location, different hydrocarbons exist either in like a solid icy phase or like a gaseous phase when those molecules have like removed themselves from each other. Does that make sense? That does. Mm -hmm. And in your paper, you write that these temperatures are actually very, very high. On the Kelvin scale, they're somewhere between 2,000 and 5,000 Kelvin. Mm -hmm. So I'm guessing that this means that they're very hard to break? 
Yeah, they are. So a lot of these hydrocarbons are what we in astronomy call complex, which means they're like greater than six atoms, which is not in general very complex, but for us it fits the bill. And um, because a lot of these molecules are, you know, composed of many different components, you actually do need a fair amount of energy to break the bonds. And you're thinking about these hydrocarbons uh, with relation to ice, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So can you explain what role ices and hydrocarbons sort of play in this disk of material uh, that will eventually form planets and perhaps life? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the entire motivation for this project was just trying to uh, develop constraints for the eventual chemical compositions of planets. So um, how this is tied into whether a species, like a chemical species, exists in like a solid icy form or a gaseous form, is that you can imagine that when you're forming planets, you start out with these like tiny solid particles that kind of aggregate to form larger particles and then protoplanets over time. And so if you have a chemical species that's in the solid phase as opposed to like the gaseous phase, then that means it can contribute towards the eventual formation of these planetary cores. But then if you have something that's in the gaseous phase, it means that once you have a planetary core, maybe you can accrete that gaseous species into the planet's atmosphere. So it has a lot of implications for like what the atmosphere of a planet is made of versus what like the solid material of a planet is made of. And hydrocarbons are especially of interest because we, to I guess first order, are made of hydrocarbons too, right? mm -hmm, or yeah. organic matter. Um, how, how was this research carried out? Were you in a lab or was mm -hmm. it... Yeah, I was in a lab, uh, which was kind of a little uncomfortable for me because I'm kind of just used to working with computers. I'm, I'm kind of clumsy. so it I'm was... also very bad in the lab. <laughs> yeah, it was a little tough for me. But um, basically what happened was we had this lab set up where we had a cryostat that was cooled to 30K and was vacuum sealed. So it was meant to mimic interstellar conditions. And what we did is that we basically allowed a very tiny amount of the hydrocarbon gas that we were interested in to be released into the chamber. And when it was uh, released into the chamber, it hit a substrate and upon just contact, it would form an ice. And so then what we would do is basically ramp up the inner temperature of the cryostat linearly and just note the like temperature at which the material just absorbed from like the icy to the gas phase. And that was it really. Well. You make it sound easy, but I'm sure it was very difficult. In <laughs> it was kind of difficult. Yeah, you have to like very carefully open the gas valve and like shut it really quickly. And I messed up a bunch of times. And yeah, it was a process. But in principle, it sounds very simple. <laughs> very nice. So would, would you say the main results from this study is just knowing what those probably going to get the term wrong, but bond dissociation temperatures mm -hmm, were? Okay. Yeah, okay. yeah, those were the main results. So these are like important parameters that like chemical modelers can use in their simulations. That's kind of why we did it. Awesome. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I want to pause to emphasize the importance of the synergy between laboratory experiments and computer modeling. The two may seem like opposite ends of the scientific spectrum, but they are actually deeply intertwined. My grad school advisor used to say, every one of these numbers in your model was some poor lab scientist's PhD thesis. And it's probably true. It takes painstaking labor to measure the physical quantities that we use as starting points to create detailed simulations of the way that the universe works. Lab work is not the first thing that people think of when they imagine planetary science or astrophysics, but it's nonetheless a critical part of our endeavor to know more about what's out there. And it's accomplished right here on Earth, in labs. 
Paul Stamets from Star Trek Discovery is a great example of the importance of lab science to understanding the cosmos. In the carefully controlled environment in his lab, he's able to unravel the properties of Prototaxides Stelaviatori and construct his grand theory of the mycelial network. Okay, so Shreyas, you uh, recently had a paper out um, looking at, at transits of exoplanets. You used a ground-based instrument and you were observing in the infrared. Uh, the particular telescope that you were using is the Palomar telescope. That's right. And you used the wide-field infrared camera on the HALE 200-inch. Is that how you pronounce it, HALE? Yeah, yeah. Okay. It's, so uh, the actual telescope, I think, is called the HALE 200-inch because it's like... 200 inches in diameter. Um, and yeah, the instrument, we call it WORK for short. WORK. Uh, WORK would stand for wide is W, IR is infrared. IR is infrared. infrared. <laughs> yeah. C is camera. So you did work on WORK, I'm sure. This is not <laughs> the first time that's been said. <laughs> no, no. I've heard like every iteration of that, that that I can possibly imagine. So can you tell me why you chose this particular telescope and instrument to do your kind of observations and what you found with those observations? Yeah, so there are a couple of really important things about this telescope in particular that made these observations possible. The first is actually that the instrument that we were using had a wide field of view. What that means is you can see a lot of stars in the sky at once. And so when you're measuring transits of extrasolar planets, what you're looking for is you're looking really, really carefully at the brightness of a star and you're watching for little dips. And anything that can help you figure out if a dip is due to the planet and not due to, say, the Earth's atmosphere changing is really helpful. And so if you can see a lot of stars at the same time, you can sort of compare all the different stars in the field and see what's happening and correct out any systematic effects happening to every star in the field and reconstruct what's happening to your target star at the times uh, that you're interested in looking for planets. That makes sense. So if there was some kind of atmospheric disturbance that was altering the way one star looks, it would do that to all of the stars simultaneously, and you can watch for that, and you can say, okay, that was definitely not a planet because all of the stars were affected in the same way. That's exactly right. I guess another really interesting and important thing that our instrument particularly uses is um, a piece of glass called an engineered diffuser. And it's basically something that takes like a beam of light, so in our case starlight, and molds it into whatever shape you want. And we molded it into a really specific shape to try to limit the variations in the apparent shape of the star, again, due to the atmospheric turbulence and stuff that would otherwise really mess up our measurements. And so the particular kind of planet that you were studying is called a super puff? What is a <laughs> yeah. super puff? That's, that, that is definitely one of the planets that we studied. Yeah, so a super puff is um, a planet that is basically very, very low density. It has a low mass and a relatively large radius. And so these planets are kind of issues for the standard planet formation theories for, for a couple of different reasons, which I guess I won't go too much into. But, I mean, like, to give you a sense of scale, they are, like, sort of the density-ish of cotton candy. And we're talking about, like, many Earth masses of cotton candy, which is, <laughs> you know, pretty crazy to think about. Mm -hmm. That's kind of weird because you would think that if you grew cotton candy large enough, it would sort of feel its own gravity and eventually just condense. And, you know, if you've ever 
eaten cotton candy or played with cotton candy that you can really squish it into like a, a tiny little dense ball. But for some reason, these planets are able to maintain their their puffiness. Yeah, that's right. And so what that means for us, what we infer from that observation is that they must have a lot of really, really low density material, basically hydrogen and helium, the two uh, lightest elements that we know of, or well, that exist. (laughs) (laughs) So in quantitative terms, cotton candy has a density of somewhere around 0.01 grams per cubic centimeter. Just for comparison, the average densities of the four giant planets in our solar system hovers around that of liquid water, about one gram per cubic centimeter, give or take. Saturn, the least dense planet in our solar system, is a little less dense than water, at 0.7 grams per cubic centimeter. But that's still about 70 times as dense as cotton candy. This reminds me of the children's book on the solar system that I used to read as a kid that said if you had a tub of water large enough to hold Saturn in it, Saturn would float. Which is absolutely ridiculous now that I think about it, because if you had a tub of water large enough to hold Saturn, that tub of water would feel its own self-gravity and become a planet itself. On the other hand, the terrestrial planets in our solar system clock in at average densities of around 5 grams per cubic centimeter. That's somewhere between the density of rock and iron, which makes sense given that this is what they're mainly made of. Mars is a bit of an outlier here with a bulk density of only 4 grams per cubic centimeter owing to its smaller iron core relative to its overall size. And, just for fun, that giant living sphere from Star Trek Discovery's second season? 565 kilometers in diameter, with a mass of 6.39 times 10 to the 20th power kilograms. It melds organic and non-living matter. Would have an average density of nearly 7 grams per cubic centimeter. So what was the main finding from your observational run? So, I guess there were a couple of things. So the Super Puff was a really cool thing uh, that we found. I think... It's an interesting one because these planets by themselves are really rare, but we think that we found the most massive superpuff that's been found. And so it might represent the end stages of what happens to superpuffs as they evolve along their lifetimes, and I think that's really interesting to follow up on. We also, we think, confirmed a two-planet system, but we await the referee report to try <laughs> to see if they believe us. Peer review is an essential part of the scientific process, a process that values reproducibility and is fueled by skepticism. As a scientist, when you have a brilliant idea, you have to get it vetted by other quote-unquote experts in the field before it can truly join the scientific literature. This means that your unpublished work is sent to anonymous peer reviewers who check your results and make sure that your logic holds. In an ideal case, this becomes an honest intellectual discussion that strengthens the science that's being done. But the anonymity makes it possible to abuse the system, and I've experienced firsthand some pretty scathing reviews. But perhaps that's a story for another time. And... Finally, I think um, probably the most important thing is that from the instrumental side, we've demonstrated that in the infrared, we can actually reach precisions with ground-based telescopes that are competitive with space-based telescopes. 
So um, in particular, we were really concerned with the NASA Spitzer Space Telescope. This telescope's going to be decommissioned in January of 2020, uh, which is really sad because it's done some amazing science. And um, what we were trying to do is say, hey, we have a lot of ground-based facilities available. Can we control the Earth's atmosphere and control of our systematics enough to be competitive with this telescope? And what we found is that we could. Very nice. Yeah. So I guess Spitzer is this telescope that's on its home stretch, I guess. Yeah, last legs. Last legs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I feel like you, you may have heard the news that uh, there's a new Jean-Luc Picard series. It's sort of like examining the later stages of his life. And maybe he's sort of like Spitzer trying to get his last discoveries in and <laughs> before he retires or something like that. I believe it. I know there's like a ton of people that are trying to you know, get as much science out of Spitzer as they can before it gets decommissioned. So good luck to both of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Ida, you're a, a big Next Generation fan, right? How do you yeah, feel about the um, the new Picard show? I'm excited. Yeah. I think it'll be good. So let's shift back to Ida's other paper, which was about basically getting to know stars better. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we're, we're trying to find planets around stars, but we're very rarely actually seeing light from those planets themselves and so we're looking for their effect on their stars and so it's very crucial to to know about the stars and their exact properties right so Mm -hmm. Ida how did this study help with that endeavor Mm -hmm. yeah so like Mike said it's super important to understand the host star of a planet if we want to like characterize a planet at all in fact there's like a very common saying in the field of planetary science and exoplanets which is know thy planet know thy star so (laughs) this is like really ingrained in us and um the motivation for this project was that we were curious to know about m dwarfs which are cooler stars than the sun so they are like at lower temperatures and um, they're actually very important because we found that they're like the most common type of star in the galaxy. So within the solar neighborhood, 75% of the stars actually are M dwarfs. But even though they're so prevalent and probably host a ton of planets, we're actually not very good at learning a lot about these stars because since they're so cool, they're cool enough that they can host molecular species in their atmospheres. And the way that we characterize stars is we often use these different codes that are called like spectral synthesis codes. And they're pretty good at modeling stars that don't have molecular species in their atmospheres. But when you have molecules, they can contribute these like really complicated rotational features in spectra. And these are like really hard to model so far. So the entire motivation of this project was like trying to find a alternative method to like characterize these stars. I see. Okay, so many stars like the sun are hot enough that they don't have molecular species. Those mm-hmm. molecules will be broken up into atoms and mm-hmm. ions, exactly, which look different in spectra than, than molecules. Mm-hmm. And, and planets' atmospheres are cool enough that they have molecules in the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And when we want to know what molecules are in a planet's atmosphere, it, it messes things up when the star also has molecules. And essentially, you're trying to understand how to characterize the molecules in a star's atmosphere. Mm-hmm. Right, okay, yeah. and so what, what was the technique that you used for this? So the technique we used was um, like a machine learning based method or data driven, they kind of mean the same thing. And all we did basically is that we had like a training set of spectra from stars that were well characterized, so like we knew what those stars were made of. And then we were able to like construct a model based on like statistical rules that could then be applied to the spectra of stars for which we want to learn about what they're made of. Okay. 
So people in the audience may not really know what machine learning is. Mm -hmm. Essentially, it's training a a computer Mm -hmm. on some well-known data set Mm -hmm. to to recognize, I guess, the same types of patterns. Mm -hmm. Yeah, essentially that's it. Yeah, everyone thinks machine learning is like this super complicated thing, but that's like kind of the crux of it. It's just like you have a sample that you know a lot about, and then you just like train a computer on that sample. It makes a model, and then you can apply that model to like more data. Yeah, yeah. Do you ever wish that if you were, say, Jean-Luc Picard, you had your little commander data, lieutenant commander data to, to do your um, analysis with? Is that sort of like, you know, when Picard asks Data, please analyze this thing, and Data just like goes through the readings like at, at lightning speed, and he's like, aha, we found such and such and such. <laughs> is, that, is that essentially, you're training, you're training your own little lieutenant commander data in your computer. Sometimes it's, it feels like it feels that. feels like that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but the weird thing is like, once you know how the math works on the inside, it's definitely not something as complicated as data, you know, <laughs> well, obviously, but like, it's really just like linear regression. Like you're just fitting like, you know, say a line to like a bunch of data points. That's how you make your model. So you don't need a data to do this. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. I was lucky enough to go to a observing run that Treyas was was uh, hosting because we're all here part of the conference and Treyas was just such an awesome guy and like tweeted out anybody at this conference can come and hang out with me while I observe. I don't know if it's sensitive information to talk about exactly what you were observing but um, you know if you just had any little fun tidbits about what it's like to actually do an astronomical observation. Sure yeah I don't think any of this is like classified or anything like that. <laughs> yeah so we were observing a, a gas giant planet just one, one like specific gas giant And we are working on a technique to try to pinpoint signatures of water in the atmospheres of gas giant planets. This has been done a lot of times with with space-based telescopes. But again, we're trying to take resources that we already have on the ground, and we're trying to see how good we can get with ground-based data. The actual act of observing, uh, especially for transiting systems, is like, really stressful for the first like hour and a half and then it's really boring for like the next like five to eight hours (laughs) so basically you're just setting everything up you're making sure the telescope's guiding on your target you're making sure you're doing everything you can to collect as many photons as you can in the time that you have but once you've set the telescope up to read how you want it to read you know, you just kind of sit there and, and you wait for the photons to be collected and you hope that nothing goes horribly wrong. Uh, and thankfully everything was fine. So, <laughs> Excellent. Well, I look forward to reading about your discoveries of this giant planet. And uh, I want to thank you both again for your time and good luck with all of your current and future endeavors. And I'm sure I'll have you back on Strange New Worlds in the near future. Thanks so much, Mike. Look Thanks, forward Mike. to it. <laughs> That's my interview with Shreyas Visapragada and Ida Bamard, whom I wish all the best as they enter their third year of graduate school and continue their scientific journeys to understand the zoo of mysterious exoplanets that have only recently been discovered. The three research projects that you heard about today One in a lab, one at a telescope, and the third utilizing a computational technique called machine learning really underscores the fact that there is no single way to be a planetary scientist. If you're interested in following Ida and Shreyas' exploits, 
and hearing about their latest scientific musings, you can follow them on Twitter at abamard and at astroshrey. Next time, I'll be on the other side of this podcast, as science writer Lori Dajose interviews me for Strange New Worlds. Now, to prime you for the odd experience of hearing me answer questions, I thought I'd end this podcast by playing you a short clip of me being interviewed last December at the American Geophysical Union meeting for the StoryCorps archive. Enjoy. Have you had any challenges in your work? My work has definitely uh, been, been challenging for me. So what I mainly do to study the atmospheres of exoplanets is use computer models. And computer modeling can be uh, very draining for me. Uh, it's a lot of typing into a terminal on a computer, and somehow the numbers that you're typing are, are supposed to describe a planet out there, uh, a planet that we have not observed yet, a planet that we can't see with our eyes. Uh, even when we do get data from these exoplanets, it's not like we have a nice picture of them. And so sometimes it's very hard to translate my day-to-day -day work into something that really sparks my imagination and something that, uh, that I can just you know, wake up and be super passionate for because I know I'm just going to go and stare at numbers on my laptop. And so something that helps me get reinvigorated about my own science is to do teaching and outreach because with that, I get to show the big picture again, why I'm doing the work that I'm doing, and I get to see people's faces light up when I discuss the planets and show artists' renditions of these planets. That's something that you know you don't really do in day-to-day -day work when you're in the nitty-gritty of code, but when you get to back up and say, oh, these are really profound questions that we're seeking the answers to, and you get other people excited in asking those questions too and, and being curious themselves, uh, that, that powers me through my own work, and I really love that. And do you feel like your work and your focus on exoplanets changes your outlook on life or perspective? Like, for me, um, when I interned at AGU and I saw my first member scientist speak and they spoke about the universe, it just... It was so different for me coming from a marine science perspective where you think about humans on Earth, but then you think about Earth in the grand scheme of the universe, and it, for me, it causes this total shift where it's like, wow, there's really so much out there. In the grand scheme of things, we're really, you know, one creature on one planet. Mm -hmm. Yes, definitely. Uh, taking a planetary perspective is really, um, like, a fundamental aspect of my experience on Earth, because I've studied planets for such a long portion of my life, I really feel that kind of connection to, to the universe. And it's both very humbling, but then also very empowering. So there's many ways that you can see the same underlying scientific facts, and I think that's where we bring our human experience and, and the humanities and uh, the creation of narratives and meaning to what we've been discussing and, and the science that we've been engaging in. And so, yeah, you're, you're totally right. When you look at Earth as such a small little mote of dust, as, as Carl Sagan put it, uh, in this vast 
cosmic void almost you know the space is mostly empty and the, the the space between different planets is huge and the space between planetary systems is even larger you start thinking about how small and almost insignificant we are in the grand scheme of things but by looking out into outer space and studying other planets the formation processes that brought other planets and other stars into existence and then being able to tell those same tales for our story so like when we look out there i really feel like our story is reflected back at us in in the other in the stars and the nebulae and the galaxies and the planets that we're observing and so we learn a lot about ourselves and in that way we can feel very connected to the entire universe to the story of the unfolding and the evolving uh, nature of the universe from the big bang all the way until now and that's super empowering too to to realize all of the steps and processes and amazing events that had to take place in order for us to be here and how the same chemical elements that are in our bodies are being created in the hearts of stars out there. That's just so, so inspiring to me to just realize that, yeah, we're star stuff. Like, that's that's great. We're a part of this whole tale. And, and so in that way, we can feel big too. And, and, and so, you know, feeling small, feeling big, they, they have, complementary aspects to, to, to life and I think just having that perspective and, and when you're feeling down you know you can say like I'm made of star stuff and uh, when you think maybe you're, you're uh, getting a little too ahead of yourself you can remind yourself look we're just a, a single person out of seven billion on this planet that's orbiting this regular star it's going around the Milky Way <laughs> you know? so it's, it's all part of the human experience and I think it's wonderful the stories that science has been able to tell us. That's really beautiful.